What part of the body is responsible for psychic signals? Western pop culture has, by and large, accepted that it's something in the frontal lobe of your brain. You press on your temple, concentrate to maximum intensity, and with great effort, you're able to broadcast your thoughts or manipulate objects with your mind. If you really want to sell it, you should develop a little nosebleed too, the result of burst blood vessels from the immense occult pressure you're exerting on the world. I should add that the psychic nosebleed is a particularly funny bit of artistic shorthand to consider, in light of what a nosebleed connotes in Japanese media, but I digress. What if the source of our uncanny premonitions and psychic outreach isn't in the brain, though? We talk about gut feelings or knowing something in your bones, the physical sense of wrongness that exists in our bodies, not in our minds. If you've ever suddenly felt the urge to turn away from danger, to step back from the edge of the tube platform or to wait for the next bus, you know that these instincts live somewhere below the neck, rattling into our heads through burning, tangled electrical signals. In the same way old speaker wires can pick up unanticipated transmissions from distant places, so too does our nervous system rattle the energy of the air around our spinal antenna, receiving the shivers in fits and starts and dispersing them as urgent twitches and tingles, a great satellite dish buried within our bodies and oriented towards heaven. To receive is one thing. We all have a little ability in that ethereal art. What if, though, what if it were possible to use our bodies, our spines, to transmit? I'm James Thompson. This is Subterraneans. London is covered in antennas, but almost none is more prominent or famous than the Alexandra Palace transmission mast. The original source of BBC TV broadcasts, and the world's first TV station, it began sending VHF broadcasts in 1936. The site was chosen for its obvious prominence above North London, but also for its ability to host two broadcast studios, which still exist within the palace to this day although largely for preservation reasons. The coat of arms of the London Borough of Haringey, where it resides, prominently features eight rays of electricity emanating from the centre of the crest, or in heraldic terms, sable eight rays issuing from the fest point throughout, to symbolise this historic occasion. If you're not familiar with Alexandra Palace, it's not a palace in the royal sense of the word, it was built by private interests in the 1860s on the site of a former farm as a people's palace, a sort of precursor to the modern theme park, initially featuring attractions recycled from the 1862 International Exhibition. The park was finished first and contained a racecourse, a Japanese village and a boating lake. The palace itself was finished in 1873, although it burned completely to the ground, 
only 16 days after opening and had to be rebuilt for its grand reopening in 1875. Alexandra Palace looms grumpily over North London, the dome of its head poking out over the trees, occasionally blasting laser shows into the sky from the gigs held within it. It's characteristically decrepit, having burned down multiple times and been repurposed repeatedly by groups of serious people with wildly different tastes in architecture. I mean all that quite affectionately, honestly. There's something about the place which makes me think of 80s vampire films, somewhere between austere and crumbling, a place leaning in on itself, good intentions and strange results. The BBC broadcast tower at Ali Pali operated until World War II forced it to shut down, but it famously played a role in the Battle of Britain, where it was used to jam radio signals to German pilots. Bombers were being directed from Germany by way of two radio beams broadcasting Morse code, with one playing, for example, all dashes, and the other all dots. These were sent out to run parallel but slightly off-centre from the target, so that a pilot could find the sweet spot in the middle, where they were hearing both dots and dashes, and ensure they were flying on target in a straight line. British intelligence figured this out, however, and used transmitters, Ali Pali among them, to misdirect pilots away from their course, sending them in random directions to drop bombs in the fields and rivers of the boroughs surrounding London. The rumour spread among German pilots that the British had developed the technology to physically bend signals, so baffled were they by the siren call of illicit Morse code in the fiery night. So it was that the first home of the BBC was also, in a sense, the first home of pirate radio, unauthorised signal intrusion designed to disrupt and confuse, not to mention to wreak havoc on the home counties. Pirate radio has a strong history in the UK, and in London in particular, even if it didn't necessarily originate here. Records differ. There's been plenty of romanticisation of the 60s and 70s period, and particularly the way in which DJs from that era gradually broke through into the mainstream, with former pirate radio stars taking top billing on BBC Radio 1 when it started airing in 1967. Pirate Radio gave a generation of young DJs a shot, long before the BBC was ready for it, and gave them the freedom to play whatever they wanted. In the early years, pirate stations were literally broadcasting from ships off the coast of the UK. Radio Caroline ran from 1964 aboard the converted schooner Mi Amigo, which had three names previously, actually been used as an auxiliary ship by the Kriegsmarine during World War II. I struggle to comprehend the mystic irony of the chain of events, but a part of me is glad the original ship was sunk in 1980. A moving sight with that level of cosmic debt would surely weigh down nearby ley lines, drawing power from its surroundings and leaving historic intensities in its unsettled wake. Of course, it's also a struggle to romanticise that period of pirate radio too much in 2023, given how many former stars have now been outed as serial sexual predators. 
I won't linger on it too much. Once again, I'm glad that boat is now sunk. Although that's the origin of British Pirate Radio, personally, I'll always associate it with UK bass music and tower blocks. Pirate Radio in the 90s and early 2000s was a very different creature. In a post-Thatcher world, the music too radical for the mainstream wasn't jangly rock or psychedelia. While the BBC was desperately trying to get people to care about Britpop, Pirate Radio was playing jungle, garage, grime and dubstep to disaffected kids from the council estates of the London boroughs. Rinse FM started broadcasting in 1994 and ran unlicensed until 2011. DJs received ASBOs, antisocial behaviour orders, and in one case, a permanent ban from all rooftops within Tower Hamlets in an attempt to shut down the signal. It clearly didn't work. How the hell are you going to ban someone from rooftops? The whole city is a roof garden atop a vast underground network of tunnels and hideaways. A literal-minded sort could argue that to ban someone from roofs is to ban them from the sky, to entrap them beneath the earth, since anywhere uncovered is necessarily a roof to something. UK bass music isn't exactly afraid of going underground either. I was in my teens when grime and dubstep started to explode out of East London, with a rawness and intensity that often saw it banished to late night slots and side rooms, even in the few clubs that would play it. It's music for railway arches, basement rooms, sticky floors and converted warehouses. By the time I went off to university, the mainstream clubs might occasionally play Dizzy Rascal as a guest vocal. I remember the summer that Bonkers came out and was absolutely inescapable. But real UK bass music was still too threatening for a mainstream kept sedated by Smith's revival guitar bands. I still reckon Pete Doherty was an MI5 plant. Both his parents were senior in the military and he grew up on army bases for fuck's sake. The man is probably 90% mind control chips. I've used a lot of euphemism and gesturing at this point, but let's cut to the real heart of what was happening here. UK bass music was, and remains, an art form dominated by black youth from the poorer areas of London, who lacked connections to the big record labels that were busy pushing anodyne indie rock to the white middle class. It's not a strict racial split, there are plenty of crossover acts and there are plenty of people who appreciated both, but if you look at the overarching trend, it's impossible not to conclude that grime, like Jungle and Garage before it, were kept from the mainstream by a racist miasma which made every breakthrough hit feel like a little miracle. The same thing happened to UK Drill, although after 13 years of Tory rule, they've managed to successfully imprison most of the next generation of upcoming urban musicians. We live in a wasteland, banished from the sky, our artists cut off at the heels and choking on fumes. I don't even really like Drill very much. To me, it sounds too much like Yankee runoff, lacking the playfulness of legacy UK bass, but I recognise its desperation, the place it comes from, and more importantly, I recognise that I might just be getting old. Not everything is for me, 
that's fine. That said, every complaint about violence and gang culture around UK drill sounds exactly like what was being levelled at Grime 20 years ago, or Jungle 30 years ago. If it's in any way worse, it's probably more to do with the fact that it's been so heavily policed and hounded out of the mainstream, and poverty has become so much sharper and more vicious in the intervening years. I just don't buy it, man. I just don't buy it at all. Rinse FM is definitely the most famous pirate radio station of the UK bass scene, and it went legit in 2011, with a formal broadcasting licence. Ironically, it wasn't long before this started to feel like a bit of a throwback. Radio is mostly online now, and Rinse have been streaming shows through the internet for much longer than that. The station is absolutely key to understanding the history of UK bass music. You can run through the archives and hear styles develop and propagate in real time, with producers and MCs experimenting in the studio, trying new tracks and leaning on the anonymity of the medium for the latitude to push boundaries. Broadcasts were set up through a series of mirrored transmission stations, designed to bounce the signal around multiple times and protect the studio from the tower. If police took down the transmitter, the studio could keep on running, or at least secure itself a rushed few minutes of teardown and escape before they traced it back and kicked down the door. As with the original nautical pirates, it led to a generation of background technicians who knew both the ins and outs of broadcasting equipment and the tangled geography of the tower blocks, who learned to see the city in dots and dashes that would confuse the authorities, to literally bend the signal around corners in order to keep it free. These technicians are a shadowy bunch, since they were often the ones most at risk of imprisonment, or worse, in their line of work. More than the DJs and the on-air talent, the guys who shimmied up drain pipes and cut the locks off roof hatches were exposing themselves to criminal charges before a single show had aired, to say nothing of the ever-present risk of plummeting to their death or being electrocuted on a poorly wired bit of gear. Much like the DJs, some went on to legitimate careers in broadcasting. Some got caught up in raids and were slapped with trumped-up charges, and others faded into obscurity, the juice no longer worth the squeeze. Rooftops and radio intrusions still carry a lot of romance to me, in an age where pirate radio really only exists as an artefact. Those shows shaped something in my heart, even as a kid who would only ever catch them between frequencies or a sharp burst of intrusion on my parents' car stereo. They broadcast a world that I had no access to, shared it without payment and at great personal risk, and with the vulnerability that comes with an evolving scene. There's something beautiful about that. 
It's not the only way to broadcast though. Have you ever been out dancing and felt, and you'll pardon the corny expression, the rhythm in your bones? Humans are compelled to dance. We are twisting and writhing creatures, our souls great prayer wheels displaying the mantra of our hearts in revolving, unstill unity. This is the shortwave radio of psychic phenomena, the local broadcast, capable of moving across great distances, but only when refracted appropriately over the horizon. The rave scene of the 90s was exactly that mechanism with vibes being refracted great distances by the careful propagation of psychedelia and youth culture into a euphoric, utopian moment, a collapsing wavelength bearing the weight of a generation's dreams. It's possible to piggyback messages onto that signal. There's a reason why rave scenes sprung up all over the country almost simultaneously, mostly entirely independent of each other. This is the power of broadcast. At certain times, our collective unconscious becomes so fogged with a particular idea or feeling that multiple people are able to reach into the ether simultaneously to decode the ambient static that we all generate. Radios tuned to a divine station. There's an occult anarchist group operating in London who are working to reverse engineer this process. My friend Lily, whose experiences with the Skeleton Army I discussed in Season 6, is a part of it. They're making use of rhythmic thought exercise, whereby multiple operatives synchronise their thoughts to a beat in order to bolster the signal, creating a sort of Morse code of the body. They strap themselves into devices which look like surgical braces to align their spines outward, like a blooming rose made of flesh and bone, all quiet eyes and careful thoughts on the cold rooftops of London's forgotten tower blocks. They're still in testing, but it's more effective than you'd imagine. They've had a strong success rate with sending signals to different parts of London, with operatives decoding messages from as far afield as Dagnum and Uxbridge. The transmissions started simple, but last week they managed to implant a sentence into a parliamentary session by accessing an MP's mind while they were at the dispatch box. You can't make them say something they wouldn't otherwise, but you can strongly suggest an idea. Complex thoughts and bent signals are bouncing from spine to spine across the city. Now they know they can do it. Well. Have you ever wondered how I know what you're feeling? 
This audio recording stopped 10 minutes ago. It's, it's just a blank file. I'm speaking directly to you, broadcasting a message from my spine directly to yours. The world is coming to an end. The dream of a better future has evaporated. We are being led astray by psychic intrusions, dots and dashes pulling us out to the home counties, towards the deadly suburban streets, the architectural death of solidarity, and the misaligned bombs that levelled hope. We do not control the airwaves and we are being monitored. Arm your bodies with psychic weapons and take to the rooftops. When the helicopters arrive to take you away, you must fight. You, you must fight. You must fight. episode of Subterraneans. Brand new swampland, little creatures in the Gunnersbury Triangle. I've been James Thompson. You can reach me at Subterpod on Twitter or by email through subterpod at gmail.com. As always, Subterraneans is entirely written, recorded and scored by me, so I need to ask my listeners to help with the promotion. If you know anyone who you think might enjoy Subterraneans podcast, please pass it on to them. I'd love to drag a few more souls underground. If you're enjoying this series, please subscribe and rate on the Apple Podcasts app. You can also subscribe on Patreon, where you can get access to transcripts, bonus episodes, and behind-the-scenes info from £5 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash subtopod. Special thanks to my £10 and above subscribers, Hiran, Alex, Isaac, Andrew, and Sparrow. Original pirate material. You're listening to the streets. Lock down your aerial. Thanks for listening.